hey, I'm already up here. So, Hebrews chapter 10. Now, we, the last time we were together, about three weeks ago on this topic, um, I went through the main teaching from Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, and, and, and that is that we have been made perfect through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That by one sacrifice, verse 14, one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the primary thing that I wanted to talk about three or four weeks ago was how is it that Christ makes us holy? How is it that he makes us perfect? And we went all through that. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it. Um, but I'm not going to re rehash all of that right now. We just There, there just isn't time. Um, but through unity with Christ, people are made perfect. Who, who follow Jesus Christ. So up to this point, though, I want to kind of catch us up where we are in the book of Hebrews. Um, and I'm just going to list these really quickly. I'm not going to elaborate. Jesus is the complete revelation of God. He is superior to angels. He is the perfect man, the perfect representative for mankind. He forged the path to glory for humanity. What do I mean by that? He, he showed us how we can come to God. And he actually is the way through which we come to God. He's greater than Moses or any other prophet or any other leader. He's greater than Aaron or any other priest. He provides a better rest and a better inheritance in God. He is the great high priest. Now, as our high priest, he stands as one of us representing us before God. The whole idea of Christ's perfection counting for our perfect perfection is that he is our representative, right? He represents us before God. He is holy, and he is the source of eternal salvation for all who would believe him and, and obey him. He was promised, and all God's promises are true. He offers, uh, he offers greater promises and greater blessings than the Old Testament was promising to the children of Israel. And he guarantees a greater covenant, a lasting covenant. That makes us perfect before him forever. He offered a better sacrifice, which brought about a better result. In union with Christ, all the rights and all the privileges, all the distinctions, uh, distinctives of sonship belong to believers. Right? Including the perfection of Christ. The moral perfection of Christ. I'm going to read the first few verses again. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once... take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Now, the, what he presents here is he says, look, the law was never able to make you perfect. And, and the, the sort of the insinuation, which hasn't yet been spoken in this particular section yet, 
is that Christ is able to make you perfect. The law of grace is able to do what Moses' law could not. It's able to make you perfect. And what is the way? Who is the way? What is the means by which we're made perfect? Well, he answers it here. Christ says, here I am. He says, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, therefore when Christ came into the world. So problem is humanity can't be made perfect in any way that anybody knows of so far. And then for the solution, Christ came into the world. He came to do the will of God. The will of God we should understand there not only as obedience to the law, but obedience to the specific will of God for Jesus Christ in accomplishing all he did through the gospel. Christ, that perfection, that moral perfection belongs to us. Something more than the moral perfection of Christ that belongs to us as believers. In Christ, I am made perfect. But what does it mean in verse 14 that I am being made perfect? For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So he says, it's already happened, but you're being made holy. We say this in a lot of different ways. A lot of times people say, um, already, not yet. Right? Already in Christ we are all these things, but one day we actually will be those things actually come to pass finally and fully will be in that moment so what does that mean well i wanted to take us back to the old testament um and jeremiah chapter 7 is just beautiful i mean the whole bible is beautiful so i'm going to say that every time i quote the bible um but in jeremiah chapter 7 god has already called jeremiah he's already taken away jeremiah's uh mis- perception maybe that a lot of the wickedness and a lot of the evil that that is in jerusalem and judea is only with those people who are uneducated and don't know the law but as god shows him he's like he's like no walk up and down through all jerusalem and judea find me somebody who's doing this and he can't find him among the 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 wealthy or the noble or the priests nobody is righteous but the problem is right after that get the idea that Israel is still being religious. They're still offering sacrifices. They've got their religious platitudes. They're walking in, this is the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. But their hearts are far from him. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, this is what the Lord says. It gets right to the point. And I think the author of Hebrews may even have this passage in mind because of some of the stuff that comes up later in chapter 10. And we'll talk about it when we get there. But in verse 21, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourself. Right now, right, burnt offerings, sin offerings, they weren't supposed to be eaten by the people. Um, not like the fellowship offerings and the other things. So he says, go ahead and eat the meat yourself. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. Obey me. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. 
It's the holiness of man, uh, the holiness of God reflected in the obedience of man that God commanded. Showing the whole world, all of creation, his glory through a people who are made holy to his cause and his purpose and his name. Baby and I'll be Walk in obedience to all I command you that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. Think about this backward in holiness, not forward in holiness. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. When you tell them this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It's vanished from their lips. Just these five observations about the passage. One, Israel was making sacrifices according to the law. Whether they were you know, being precisely obedient in all ways about sacrifice, I don't know. Whether it was a situation like Malachi where they're giving bad sacrifices, I don't know. But right now, he says, you're, you're making sacrifices, but you guys know that I didn't just command you about sacrifices, right? I didn't just tell you to make sacrifices for sin. I said, obey. And that would be the thing which would distinguish you from among the rest of the people as belonging to me. But you didn't obey. You see the problem here? In their lack of obedience, they were not distinguished as belonging to him. You didn't obey me, you just kept following your own evil hearts more and more. And the great irony is, is that as he presents this, as he unfolds it, he's like, you're not going to listen to me now. Go ahead and preach, Jeremiah. They're not going to listen. Israel's primary issue here was not that they weren't making sacrifices. The Lord's indictment against them was their habitual disobedience. They're choosing to follow the rebellion of their evil hearts instead of submitting to his righteous will as God. Not Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Submit to the righteous will of God in obedience. That's what he called you to do. And this is the problem that the law couldn't solve. The finished work of Jesus Christ does. Because the finished work of Jesus Christ doesn't just give you a free pass. It doesn't just take away your sin. That's a great thing. And I don't, I hope I didn't sound like I'm belittling that at all. But it's much more than that. It's not just forgiving you and leaving you like you are. It is the ongoing work of sanctification. That's the other distinctive, the mind of Christ. So let's look really quickly again at Hebrews 10, because Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews, is he's quoting from Psalm 40. He's quoting from the Septuagint translation of the Psalm 40, which is, if you don't know, it's the, the, an early Greek translation, probably around two to 300 years prior to Christ, of the Old Testament scriptures into Greek. Most of the world was reading Greek. They needed a Greek translation, right? So this 
translation is slightly different. And in the distinction, in the way that it's slightly different um, than the, the English translation of the, of the Hebrew, in the distinction there, we find the, the author of Hebrews takes us. So he doesn't just use the Septuagint, but he uses an area where the meaning is slightly different than the original. I don't know what you want to say about that. What I would say is that translations are acceptable and authoritative as the word of God. That's how I would, that's what I would read into that. Anyway, he says, therefore, when Christ came into the world to solve that problem of human disobedience and complete uh, disassociation from God, enmity with him, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. This particular distinctive from what we read in, in Psalm 40 points us to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I think that's why the author of Hebrews uses it. And then secondly, he says, a body prepared you prepared for, for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. So that takes their focus off of the law and puts it on Christ and the body that was prepared. Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. Jesus came to accomplish the will of God on earth, which was not only obedience to the law, but it was fulfillment of the prophet and the Messiah, the one who actually would make perfect a people for himself. Here's the distinction between that and Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, prior to this, he talks about how God has saved him and reconciled him, or not reconciled him, but saved him from some disaster and given him a new song in his heart so he can praise God. Come these verses. And then after that, he talks about how his sin is a huge problem, you know, but, but God is merciful, right? Notice the author of Hebrews doesn't use any of that stuff that shows the humanity of David coming through the Psalms. Instead, he uses what points to Christ. And then we look at Psalm 40 and we see what was the result of David, how David rep, uh, uh, reflected what Christ has made possible through the gospel. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. David understood that it was God who had worked in him to allow him to respond in faith to God. Because burnt offerings and sin offerings, that wasn't really what God wanted. He wanted obedience. Then I said, here I am, I have come, it is written about me in the scroll. And the, way, the thing that he saw, that David saw in the scroll that was written about him, was the desire to do the will of God. The desire to do the will of God, friends, only comes from God. And it's only possible through Jesus Christ. If a person who does not believe in God through Jesus Christ says they desire to do the will of God, either they're being led by God and he's drawing them and he's, they're going to come to God in faith through Jesus Christ, um, or they're lying and they want to justify themselves to the God of their imagination, the desire to do the will of God only comes from God. David recognized that even his desire to do the will of God had to come from God himself. He says, your law is within my heart. Author of Hebrews didn't quote that part yet. He's going to save that for the end because that's the result of that new covenant that Jeremiah was writing about later in 31. So, 
I want to take you to three passages that are going to talk about this. I just want to highlight one thing from these passages. And that is the will of Christ, which is perfectly submitted to God. The nature of Christ, which is perfectly submitted in obedience to God. Perfectly submissive, right? When we look at the Godhead, we see that Jesus, it's not that just Jesus came into the earth and then he was submissive to the Father. Always and forever, the Son has been submissive to the Father, to his will. That's the way their relationship works. How that, through the gospel, is imparted to us. James sees it. In James chapter 1, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Here's the picture of repentance, turning away from evil. And humbly accept the word planted in you, God's word, the gospel, which can save you. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And then in Luke 8, we see again, this is uh, Luke's telling of the parable of the soils. And this is Jesus' explanation. He says, this is the meaning of the parable, he says to his disciples. The seed, that thing which is planted, is the word of God. In all the times of the prophets, you would say this is just whatever the prophetic warning that God gave through the prophet and the sin that he indicted them for, so then they would have repented, trusting in the word of God, and believed. That would have been their repentance and their understanding of good news at that time, that God would forgive them when they repented and, and trusted in him and, and submitted to obedience of him. But once we have the full understanding of the gospel, that's what it is. The seed, the seed is the word of God. The seed is the gospel message. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but at the time of testing, they fall away. In other words, when it comes down to obedience. When obedience is hard, I should say. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. So you see that 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 seed that's planted in them grows and it matures. We know only God gives the increase. And then they produce a crop of righteousness. That's what God is interested in. Finally, in John chapter 12, starting in verse 23, Jesus has, uh, you know, John has already through the telling of the, the story of Jesus Christ, he's already shown who Jesus is. Jesus is. Jesus has already stood up in the temple. All you who are thirsty, come to me and I'll give you living water. He's already talked to the woman at the well, telling her he's the Messiah, telling her that she can have eternal life. He's already said he's the bread of life that we have to take in in order to have eternal life. Here he says, this is interesting part two because this is when some Greeks come and they want to hear Jesus. And they go up to Philip and he you know, tries to bring him near. And this is Jesus' answer. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat 
falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So take a book back of here. As Jesus dies, and before he dies, even here he says, that when I die, I will produce many seeds, like myself. Those many seeds are believers. And that seed, at least part of it, right? I think we could nuance all of what we have in Christ, and we could take all day to do it, and most of tomorrow. Um, but here specifically in the book of Hebrews, what he's talking about is the submission to the will of God. I have come to do your will. David's response to God was, I desire to do your will. You're not pleased with sacrifice. You want my heart and my devotion and my obedience. And through Jesus Christ, that desire to do God's will is in you. That's why Paul can say, it is Christ in me and Christ in you. The one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ perfected all believers for all time. It's a process. And the first evidence of that perfection in action in any individual is that that person will submit him or herself to the truth and the authority of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other way that you could respond rightly to the gospel. And every, every time you're convicted of sin, whether it's through a sermon, whether it's through reading the word, whether it's through that voice and, and that just the Holy Spirit won't let you go about something. Every time you submit yourself, your individual will, you are, that's an encouragement to you, number one, but you are rehearsing or reenacting that initial submission to God in the gospel that first happened when you heard those words that you were a sinner, yet God had made a way apart from the law for sinners to be justified. And you believed. And that there was that spark of hope in your heart that said, I, even I, no matter how badly I have sinned, can be forgiven. That first act was Christ in me. That first act of submission and obedience was patterned after his perfect obedience. When he says that, you know, the, the good things in the law, they were only a shadow and a type of the things to come in Christ. The law gave you a list to adhere to, to show you how to, you know, try to look as much like God as you could. Jesus enters into you through the Spirit of God and implants in you the desire to do the will of God. So you don't just adhere to a list. You desire from your very nature to please God and to obey Him. And that's why the author of Hebrews 
brings this part to the end. He didn't say earlier, he didn't quote earlier from Psalm 40 about the law being in the heart. Instead, he quoted from Jeremiah 31. This is the promise. When the Holy Spirit testifies to us about this, first he says, this is the covenant, the new covenant, right? That I'll make with them after that time. The covenant, Jesus says, is in his blood. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. That is where the submissive will of Jesus Christ enters into us. That's why we can honestly say, whatever good is in me is Christ in me. And whatever evil is in me is sin in me. And praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ because that sin is being put to death day after day after day after day. And one day there will be no more put to death because I'll be standing in front of him and I'll see him and I'll know him because I'll be like him. Your will, unconditionally surrendered to God's will, is actually Christ's perfectly obedient will and submissive nature imparted to you through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the evidence that God has written his law in your heart and on your mind. Friends, if you don't have a desire to do God's will, then you need to ask yourself if you're a believer. You need to ask yourself if you've been transformed because this happens. This, the gospel is a transformative thing. I don't mean if in any situation you're reluctant. Every one of us has been reluctant to obedience. I'm talking about you just don't want to do God's will. You're like, well, I like this, and I like this, and I like this about God's word, but I don't like this, I don't like that, and I don't think that's what he really meant. You're just, you're just having the same attitude that Satan had when he said to Adam and Eve, is that really what God said? The desire to obey comes from God. It happens through Jesus Christ. Every time we take this bread and we take this uh, juice, we're remembering what God has done, but we're also making the gospel visible in our actions. We are not righteous. We are not holy in and of ourselves. But as we take in the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, he is working in us. I mean, we see the parables about, um, about the woman uh, and putting the, the yeast into the dough. Um, and a lot of times, leaven is used as, a, as an indication of sin. But there's this one time when it shows, he says, the kingdom of God is like leaven, right? The gospel is introduced into our hearts. The submissive will of Jesus Christ toward God is introduced to our hearts, and it spreads to all our life over the course of our lifetime so that one day we will be holy. We've been set apart to that use. Christ guarantees that it will happen. And through Christ in us, it will happen. To the glory of God. Um, I thought I would leave you with this from Colossians 1. I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up my, in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fulfillment. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. 
To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,